Well, good morning once again to all of you. So glad you're here this morning. We continue today in our sermon series on the book of Philippians. And as we continue to make our way through Paul's letter, we find ourselves this morning at the beginning of chapter 3. So let me invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you have one. In most of the Pew Bibles that are the ESV non-large print version, it will be on page 981. Let me start us off uh, just by reading the first verse today, and we'll pause there for a moment. Because this first verse, it's interesting, it's, it's not just a little caveat here that, that Paul throws in. It's a very helpful reminder. It's a helpful reminder from Paul to the Philippians, and I, I think and I hope it will be a helpful reminder from me to you. And from time to time, it'll be good for us all to remember this reminder. So Paul begins in verse 1 with uh, a word that's been translated in our English version into the word finally. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's wrapping things up. Uh, it means that he's, he's switched to a new topic now. So you could think of him saying, and now, and now another thing, finally. I was reminded this week of, of a joke of, of a dad who's sitting next to his young son in church, and during the sermon... Uh, the son turns to his dad and whispers to his dad, Dad, what does it mean when the preacher says the word finally? And the dad whispers back, Son, it means absolutely nothing. <laughs> Why are you laughing? So Paul is not wrapping up here. He's not done. He's got a lot more to say, um, but he's just switching topics. Last week was all about Timothy and Epaphroditus. And now with this caveat in verse 1, important reminder, finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. There's that glue again in the Lord. It's everywhere. It says it again. Now comes the caveat slash reminder. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Uh, so there, there it is. It, to write the same things to you, for me to preach the gospel to you. For me to bring you back once again to the essentials. For me to bring you back once again to Jesus. Paul is saying to them, I never get tired of it. To write or to say or to preach the same things to you is no trouble for me. Because these same things are the core things. They're the foundational things. It would be as preposterous as getting up on a, on a beautiful morning and being tired of the beautiful sun shining in a crystal clear blue sky. Say, oh, doggone it. There's the sun again. Why is the sun so persistent and shining in that sky? I wish for once the sun wouldn't come up today. I wish for once that blue sky could be marked by something else. Let's put a watermelon up there. That'll do it. No, it's this beautiful sun in, in a clear sky. And Paul is saying to say these same things to you, to bring you back once again to the beautiful gospel, to the beautiful truths of Jesus, to the beautiful truths of who we are in Christ is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Literally, it's a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard for you. The more we hear and the more I preach, the more we preach, the same things to you and to ourselves, the better off we are. So Paul is saying. 
So I think it's a bad thing, probably, an unhealthy thing for a preacher or for a people then to expect novelty uh, in the pulpit. It becomes a prison of sorts for both parties. Uh, the preacher begins to feel like he or she needs to use different gimmicks or different props or pyrotechnics or something uh, to keep the listeners awake and interested in coming back and, and the people begin to want those things as well. So even though Paul is going to switch gears in a sense away from Timothy and Epaphroditus and say some new things at a foundational level, at a, a core level, essential level, he's saying the same things. Different ways, different angles, but in essence saying the same true gospel things. So Paul is saying to the Philippian church, don't expect novelty from me. And so if I can be so bold as to ride on Paul's coattails, I'd want to say to you, don't expect novelty from me or from any of the preachers here. I hope you hear different sermons. I hope you hear many different sermons here. But I hope at the core, you only really ever hear one message here. I hope you can get up on a Sunday morning and know I'm going to go to church today and I'm going to hear the gospel. I'm going to go to church today. I'm going to be pointed to Jesus again. I'm going to get up today. I'm going to look at the blue sky and the sun's going to come up. I'm going to sit in these pews. I'm going to watch online. I'm going to hear the gospel. I'm going to be pointed to Jesus today. So that's what Paul is saying. Uh, so please, God, may that be so here. So with that reminder out of the way, these 11 verses then provide all of us today what I would call a refresher course. I think it's a refreshing refresher course on what are the bedrock truths and what are also the mountain peaks of the gospel. We have it all here in these verses, bedrock truths and mountain peaks. It's so easy for us. We're no different from the Philippian church. We're no different from the people of God in the Old Testament. It's so easy for all of us to be led astray, to be led from one uh, direction to the other uh, pretty quickly. We sing that hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I love that line. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God above. So here's my heart taken. Seal it. Seal it. We're prone to be moved to and fro by internal forces, our own sinful nature, or by external forces. So that's why today you'll notice this with me, that Paul gets as serious as, as he ever gets. He also gets as personal as he ever gets and as clear as he ever gets about what the gospel is not and what the gospel is. So let's approach our text uh, just by following his flow of thought here. Verses two through seven, what the gospel is not. And boy, does Paul come out swinging. He has had several cups of coffee when he writes and he begins in verse two, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So I wasn't kidding when I said Paul gets as serious as he ever gets this morning. Look out for the dogs, evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. What has gotten Paul so worked up? I think it's important for us to, to, to focus on this because it's the same thing that should get us worked up. What gets Paul worked up is this. False teachers leading Christians astray. And these false teachers are leading Christians astray by undermining their confidence in Christ alone as the basis for their salvation. 
And they're doing this by saying, oh, sure, you can be confident in Christ, but not in Christ alone, and not even in Christ first. First, the false teachers are saying then, and many say now, you have to follow the old rules, the old external rules of the old covenant, specifically for men, circumcision, The core of their false teaching was this, and this might sound familiar to us even in our day. Salvation is firstly an external accomplishment of the flesh, not an internal faith in Christ. So the false teaching could be summarized like this. Out with the new, in with the old. The old sign, the old sign of circumcision. It was the sign of the covenant given to God As God's people in Genesis chapter 17, it was a physical setting apart, an actual external sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But then stick with me here. Fast forward to the new covenant. God keeps his everlasting covenant. He keeps it with his people. And Jesus fulfills the law. The writer of Hebrews points this out all over the place. He fulfills in himself, in his flesh, the law. And now we're made God's people by the blood of Jesus. That's how now we are signed, sealed, delivered. Uh, I'm yours by the blood of Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The internal act of faith and obedience is still necessary, just like it was in the Old Testament. It wasn't like in the Old Testament, all you needed was an external sign but that faith and obedience wasn't necessary. That is still necessary, but Christ himself has fulfilled the external obligations. Now, I know, I just know, all of you are sitting here hoping I will preach a whole sermon on circumcision. Um, I am very sorry to disappoint you. I'm going to move on. That's what Paul wanted to do. Paul wanted to move on. And he wanted to move on from it because of the cross. We'll sing these words later. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? Only. That's the key word. Only. Confidence. That our souls to him belong. But false teachers come along, say to Christians, then and now, no. Your confidence cannot be in Christ alone. Your confidence must be in the flesh. And they go further. They say to Christians... That until you subscribe to an external obligation, you are impure and you are a dog. And so Paul, again, as serious as ever, sort of uses an old playground trick of I'm rubber, you're glue, bounces off me and sticks to you. And he says, no, actually, you're the dogs. And in those days, dogs were not fluffy, kind little pets. For the Jewish people, for that culture, they were the epitome of impurity because they ate anything. And so the false teachers are saying to Christians, because you've not followed these external signs, you're dogs. And Paul comes along and says, no, you're you're actually the dogs. You're mutilating the gospel. You're getting it all backwards. Paul says that Christians who actually don't put their confidence in the flesh, but who put it all, all on Jesus, they are the circumcision. That's what he's saying. He's saying we are by grace by faith, by the finished work of the cross set apart. 
and the external obligations, additions, requirements, burdens, laws, rules, all made up, are no more useful than mutilation. So Paul gets serious here, dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. But if you think Paul gets serious about false teachers leading the children of God astray, remember what Jesus said. You think Paul had a cup of coffee? Listen to Jesus. Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Paul is tame compared to Jesus. Gets Jesus pretty worked up too when it comes to false teachings leading his people away from him, leading them into sin. These distortions are subtle in a way, and in our day there are plenty of them to go around. And so what we're called to do is look out for them. Paul is not saying be afraid of them, not look out in a, oh my goodness, I'm so afraid sort of way. But look out, the way he means it here is be aware. Be conversant in. Be knowledgeable about the distortions. Look out for them. The gospel, Paul is saying, is seriously, unbelievably good news. So anything that distorts it or seeks to qualify it or add to it is also to be taken seriously and shown to be literally unbelievable, not to be believed, to be actively repudiated. Every once in a while, I'll see a news story uh, about some protester somewhere in an art museum who will sneak in something like a, a little can of paint or an apple pie or whipped cream or something, and they'll throw it upon a priceless work of art. And everyone loses their mind, rightfully so. And they wrestle the person to the ground and throw them in jail and, and all that. We are also to repudiate anything that throws paint up or an apple pie up upon the perfection of the gospel. Anything that causes us to put confidence in the flesh instead of Christ alone. And now Paul drives it home. He's going to drive it home what the gospel is not by saying this. If anyone had ever had any excuse to be confident in the flesh, it was me. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And I love this. Paul cracks me up. I can just picture him thinking, not going to brag. I'm not, not going to do it. Not going to brag. Timothy, stop goading me into, okay, fine, I'll brag. And so here he goes. He brags in verse five. Here's his resume as the consummate Pharisee, consummate rule keeper, consummate doer, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I love that. I'm going to call myself a Virginian of Virginia, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I guess I was born in Florida, so I can't. As to the law, as a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Well, there's a resume. There's a resume. Paul knows better than anybody the utter tragedy of doing, doing, doing for God because he had done it all. And he had done it in two different categories by virtue of his lineage, his family tree, by virtue of his accomplishments, and he'd become so, he admits it here, maniacally zealous that in his 
zealousness to do for God, he had actually persecuted the church. That's really interesting because I think, I can think oftentimes, maybe you can too, of Paul before his conversion when he's rounding up Christians and killing them and persecuting them and taking glee in the public execution of Stephen, sort of picture Paul as some sort of evil villain in a movie just enjoying doing evil to the church. That's not, that wasn't the motivation for Paul before his conversion. He was doing it out of zeal for God. He thought he was doing God favor after favor after favor. But what had happened was he had become so blind in his heart, blinded by doing that he wasn't able to see. He wasn't able to believe. Paul says this is not the gospel, this posture of confidence in the flesh. He had become like the rich young ruler in Luke 18. He had done, 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 but he couldn't believe. And so then we get to verse 7, and he says, So then whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. That's the cry of a heart that has been pierced by the gospel. The response of a man or a woman who can look back on their life and all their accomplishments and their advanced degrees and their three-car garage and their LinkedIn connections and their flowing clergy robes and they can look back on it all. I don't have a three-car garage, by the way. I'm not talking about myself. Look back on it all and say, loss, loss, give me Jesus. As the song says, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Fleshly confidence is not the gospel. Here's what it is. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of. Now, here it is. None of that Pharisee stuff. None of of that hollow stuff. Here's the real stuff. Back to verse 8. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Knowing Christ, gaining Christ, being found in Christ, that's what it's all about. So it's all about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus gaining Christ above all things. I said earlier, Paul gets as serious as ever here, and he also gets as personal as he ever does here. Here's an example of that. We see that Paul now finds his surpassing worth. Paul now finds his his confidence, not just in knowing Jesus the Lord, not just in knowing Jesus as Lord, but he says it here, the only time he ever says it this way, knowing Jesus, my Lord, my Lord, the one who holds the universe together, one who calls the stars each by name, he is my Lord. Paul had been saved from the hollow, external keeping of the law to an internal conversion of his heart. He came to literally believe the, what was at one point unbelievable for him. Jesus was the Lord, and he was his Lord. And because of that, what we see is Jesus utterly defined Paul's life. Now, I have to admit, 
that sometimes in my life, I have heard sermons that have been so bad that they've made me kind of want to scream. And if there was one sermon, don't worry, it wasn't here, it wasn't any of the preachers here, and it wasn't mine, although this one's not over yet, so we'll see. If there was ever one sermon that made me want to scream, it was at the funeral service of a believer in Christ. And the whole sermon was basically this. What will you do with your dash? On this side, you have the date of your birth. On this side, the date of your death. In the middle, there's your dash. It encompasses your whole life, your whole life story. What will you do with your dash? I wanted to scream. What do I want to do with my dash? I want to count it all as rubbish. I want to count it all as loss for the sake, for the all-surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And because I know Jesus Christ as my Lord, it's not a dash. It's an arrow. I'm not going to die. I'm going to live forever with Jesus Christ. My life is lost because I know Christ and it's gain. What am I going to do with my dash? For goodness sake. It's not a dash. It's an arrow of knowing and more knowing and more knowing. I got worked up there. Sorry, I don't know what happened to me. Let's get back into Philippians. Verse 8, you'll see this. Paul talks of knowing Christ, gaining Christ. Verse 9, being found in Christ, being made righteous through faith in Christ. Verse 10, if you're looking at it, again, knowing Christ, knowing the power of the resurrection of Christ, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. The gospel is not confidence in the flesh. The gospel is the good news of certain confidence in Jesus. And I'm not saying anything novel. (laughs) I'm saying the same things. Praise God for these same things. Knowing him, gaining him, being found in him, being made righteous through faith in him, knowing the power of his resurrection, the sharing in his sufferings. For the Christian, for you and me, and for this church, true life, true growth, true vitality, true safety, Paul says in verse 1, is found only when we are absolutely steadfastly, rejoicingly centered on Jesus. When our lives, like Paul's was, when our lives are utterly defined by Jesus. Paul Paul says everything else, loss. Everything else, rubbish. I love that word. I wish we used that word more. Rubbish. But knowing Jesus, being found in him, being made righteous through him, living in the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, gain. That's what I want to do with my dash. To know him, share with him in the power of his resurrection and in his sufferings. What Paul has done here has basically been to expose a counterfeit gospel. He holds it up for the hollowness that it is. And he proclaims the real deal to us. It's been interesting as we've tracked through Philippians that oftentimes what we are given here is a contrast in this book between old ways, dead ways, and the new ways, the ways of life. Just a few other ways in this study so far. We've been shown contrasts. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 15, Paul said, Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. Chapter 1, verse 28, the enemy means your destruction, 
God means your salvation. More contrasts in chapter 2. Do nothing from selfless ambition or conceit, but in humility. Verse 15 of chapter 2. In the midst of a crooked generation, twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And then today, I count everything as loss because of, here's the contrast, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's an old song that says it this way. You probably know this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. One more contrast to point out as we close, or I may say, finally, one more contrast. And this is in our final verse uh, this morning, verse 11. And we see how Paul has gone in his life, thanks be to God, from utter confidence in the flesh, doing, 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 and utter arrogance in his doing. He's gone now to utter humility, utter dependence on Jesus from start to finish. Look with me at one last verse, verse 11. He wants to know Jesus, become like him, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. By any means. Now, we know this by now. He's not talking about his means. (laughs) He's not talking about his efforts. What Paul means here by, by any means is, I am so desperately dependent on the means of Jesus to keep me and preserve me and sustain me to the end and beyond the end and utter dependence by any means possible. I am on the mercy of Jesus, that's what he's saying, from start to finish. We, we heard this last week or, or the week before, I'm, they're starting to run together in my mind now, uh, that we're called to shine as stars in, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This is how we shine as stars by our dependence, our weakness, our need for Jesus, our utter dependency on Jesus, that's how you will shine, like a star. That's how you will shine. And that's how Truro will shine. I'm so glad for all of our programs. I'm glad for our website, our branding, our professionalism. I'm glad for it all. It's necessary. But that is not why we're on the street corner. It's not why we're here. We're here to shine as stars. And the way we do that is by our utter dependence upon Jesus. He can do a lot with a church like that. And he will. So, to preach these things to you and to myself is no trouble to me and is safe for all of us. Let's pray for a moment and ask for God's help. Lord, I pray that you, by your grace and in your kindness, would continue to point out the rubbish and that you would continue to point us to Christ. Lord, I I pray now by your Holy Spirit that you would plant these words deep into our hearts and center us upon uh, the beautiful Son the beautiful, bright, shining gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.